Take your Bibles this morning and turn in them to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we are returning to this wonderful text of Scripture as Luke is being a faithful historian for us and recording the moments in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ so that we, along with his friend Theophilus, as we know from chapter 1, so that we will all know the exact truth, the exact certainty concerning Jesus, who is the Christ. Before we get into this, I want to just ask the Lord to honor our time. Would you bow with me? Father, we do thank you for our time this morning. It's time to open your word together. Lord, I pray that what we hear this morning would have an impact upon us in our own hearts, our own lives. Lord, that the implications of this text would weigh upon us and change us. That your name would be high and lifted up. You would be glorified, seen for who you are, and that our lives would be seen for what they are in your presence. And that all who are here might, by faith, embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. So to that end, we ask for your attention to us and thanking you for giving us this time. Be honored through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some four decades ago, there was a tragedy that struck in my extended family. I was in college at the time, and one of my brothers and his new wife had recently welcomed into their family a new baby boy. He was a, a cute little kid, as most babies are, I guess. Some people say babies aren't really all that cute. And when you think about it, you wouldn't be too cute either, being squoze through a hose. And yet he was cute in ways, and he was a delight, certainly, to my brother and his new marriage and their life. One morning while I was in my college dorm room, I received a call from my mother saying that something had happened and that their son had tragically died. Of course, as you could well imagine, it was devastating for them, an emotional event for all of the family and that sense of loss. I jumped in my car, traveled the 300 miles from college home with two young women in my car with me named Mary and Martha. Not kidding. <laughs> Had nothing to do with the fact that they were just simply friends of my sister-in-law, but interestingly enough, that was their name. While I was in the military, both of my grandfathers died. I was overseas at the time when they passed away. I certainly have felt the pain of loss in many other ways through the death of friends and close relatives. But all of those deaths, of all of them really, that death of the child was most unnatural. My brother at the time was just 19 
his son's death was certainly difficult at the very least. I've heard of others describe it like this. It's like putting a period at the end of a sentence that just began. Why do they say that? Well, they say that because we expect the elderly to die. We expect older people, aged. We don't expect the young to die, but the emotional pain that follows only compounds the struggle. I was reminded of that in my own history of life simply because of the text we come to this morning. This is the scene that Jesus is encountering. And I want to just say it at the outset as we begin our time this morning that this is no mistake. I think I need to say that. This is not a mistake. This is not a coincidence. This is, in fact, divine providence. What do I mean when I say that this is divine providence? I mean that all of this that we find in this text this morning, beginning in verse 11, all of this has been pre-planned by the sovereign hand of God. None of it is by chance. None of it is a radical happening that just somehow takes God by surprise. This is all by His sovereign providence. It is no coincidence. It is not something that has haphazardly been flung into the time frame in which Jesus is walking the earth. This moment has been designed by God so that God incarnate could display for everybody to see that He is in fact the one who gives life. This is a pre-planned moment by the Creator of creation that this moment would take place at this time so that Jesus Christ would be seen for who He is. Now that is said at the start so that we never forget. So that we never forget that in life, God is the one who is who has the superintending control over all human actions and over all human events so that His predetermined purposes come to pass. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever in your mind and in your circumstances of life allow yourself as a Christian to go down the road of doubting for a second That what is happening in your life in the moment is providentially ordained by God. Even in those moments, and especially in those moments that seem so unexplainable. So mind-blowingly out of character for life. God has planned it all. God is providential.
providentially involved so that he is perfectly controlling all that is happening so that the outcome brings about his purposes just as he has perfectly planned. And what is that perfectly planned purpose? Simply this, to highlight the reality that His Son, Jesus Christ, is God in the flesh. That Jesus Christ is, in fact, God incarnate. So if you go away from here this morning with nothing else that I've said, if you fall asleep right now, at least wake up with this on your mind, knowing this, God has visited His people. Notice what Luke says, beginning in verse 11. And it came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. This is a tragic moment. And so it seems at least from an earthly perspective, that it is a horrific moment as Jesus walks up upon it. Notice verses 11 and 12 give us the scene. Comes about soon afterwards. Soon after what? Soon after Jesus had just been in Capernaum and heals the centurion slave doesn't go to the place where the centurion is. The centurion calls him off short, saying, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Jesus had been going willingly, even with the Jewish leaders that the centurion had sent, and yet he sends other friends and says, I'm not worthy for you even to come under my roof. I didn't come to you, even myself, because I'm not worthy even to be in your presence. Just say the word and my slave will be healed. And of course, Jesus is astounded at that kind of faith, particularly in the Gentile world, because he had 
come to his own people, the Jewish people, and they had not even shown that kind of faith. And it's after that, it comes about after that, that he goes to this city called Nain. And his disciples are going along with him, that is, both the apostles and those who were following Jesus, a large multitude of people. And as he approaches the city gate, shockingly almost, as Luke writes it, behold, pay attention to this, this isn't normal, a dead man is being carried out the only son of his mother, and she's a widow. And these two crowds come together, a sizable crowd from inside the city and this large multitude with Jesus. So Jesus has left now the town of Capernaum, and he has traveled a day's journey to the town of Nain. Nain was about 25 miles from Capernaum, A normal day's journey was 20 or 25 miles. You were walking, so you could walk about that far in a day's journey. And so by the time Jesus arrives, it's probably late in the afternoon, sometime later in the day, and it appears that by chance, he and this entourage that is with him come upon this funeral procession that is coming out of the town. And of course, I already told us that this is no encounter by way of chance. This is God's design. This is fact. We could even say this has been designed by Jesus himself. God does nothing by chance. This has been perfectly orchestrated by his providential plan, by his glory and power, so that he would be clearly seen as who he is that no one could rightly, in their right mind, deny that Jesus is God. And so here is this procession happening, being led by this woman who is devastated by the grief that's in her heart because she has lost her son. This is her only son. He is an older person now, at least by way of age. He's not a child. He's a dead man, it says in verse 15. He is least an older man, but he is is her only son, and she is mourning the loss of his son, particularly, in fact, that now she is left alone. She's a widow, so previously she and her son have lost both her husband and his father. And here is this funeral procession that is going out of the city gate as Jesus and the crowd enter. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. No, not a coincidence at all. Of course, this is providence. And you notice that the cries of the funeral are loud. There's a large multitude, a sizable crowd from the city that is with her. It is loud because this is how every funeral procession is. You even see it somewhat today, even in the Middle East. There are not only those who are mourning because they were related to this person, but oftentimes you would have professional mourners who would be accompanying these kinds of things to ensure that proper mourning was taking place for the deceased. So the crowd is loud, but also you would have been loud because this was a son that had died, an only son. So it's tragedy upon tragedy. And on top of the public display of sorrow here is this private sorrow, the sorrow of this woman who is simply weeping 
weeping over the loss of her son. And now she is without the power to even have provided anything for herself. There's no provider, no protector for her in the world. Her husband is gone. Her son is gone. And she obviously is weeping. But what she may not realize in that moment is that God is always providing. God is always protecting. Protecting his people. And so as this grief-stricken woman just walks to the place where her son would be buried, she has no hint of what is about to take place. No idea. So God in the flesh begins to show himself to everybody who's there. Notice, first of all, the compassion of God. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, do not weep. Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. This is This is God incarnate. This is God in the flesh. And I know the way that we hear those words don't necessarily have the weight that they ought to have upon us. When we hear the word compassion, we think for our compassion for someone else in some kind of way. But the word that Luke uses is probably the weightiest word that could be used to describe the emotion that Jesus is feeling for this woman. The original word is pronounced splagnezomai. Splagnezomai. It's a wonderful word. It's one of my favorite words in the Greek language just because of how it sounds. Splachna. That's how it sounds. It's just very guttural. It's a very visceral term. It, it, It refers to the inside of us the very guts of us, who we are on the inside, the very visceral reality that when he sees her, he just has this internal sense for her her pain, her struggle, her difficulty. He feels splagnezomai. He feels compassion for you, for her. And so what Luke is telling us He's telling us that the compassion of Jesus, and don't forget this is God, this is the compassion of God, comes from the depths of who God is. The very compassion that God would show to us, the very compassion that God brings to us at any moment, at any time, in the great tragedies and the small things of life that bring difficulty in us, comes from the very depth of who God is. Jesus actually feels for this woman and it shows. It shows. And I want us to recognize something here. The compassion that we see from Jesus was typical of Jesus. In other words, this isn't an unusual compassion of Jesus. This this is the compassion that is typical of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. I don't know if you remember when we studied through the Gospel of John, Jesus went to see Mary and Martha. Remember, they're 
brother had died, their brother named Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus. Jesus was close with this family, and Jesus goes to see them. And it says in John eleven thirty three, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think that's a great definition of of the compassion that we see here in Luke chapter 13. Jesus being deeply moved and and greatly troubled by this woman's pain, her struggle, the difficulty. Even in Mark chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus feels compassion for the people who are following him. This is God's compassion. So when, when Jesus sees this woman... He's moved with with that same gutturalness in His humanity that is born out of the very character and nature of who God is. He's moved with compassion for her. I I don't think it's a stretch for us to know that Jesus' heart has the same compassion for us, for our sorrow. His empathy for us is a real empathy. You say, really? Yeah, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, I'm sorry, 32 and 33, he said, for if he causes grief, There's the providential hand of God, which is orchestrating every moment, even the tragedies of life, even the difficulties of life. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Why? Because he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. The very character and nature of God is not simply to to have us grieve. The very character and nature of God is to orchestrate the realities of life and then to share His very character and nature with us to show His compassion. So as we look at Luke chapter 7 and we see this woman in the the tragedy of life, we, we may have our own thoughts about the hurts in our own life, the difficulties in our own life, the tragedies in our own life, and even those we cannot articulate all of the whys about why did this happen, but know this, God understands personally and with empathy. And he says to us, just like he said to this woman, don't weep, do not weep. He isn't saying to her, listen, suppress your emotions. Just suck it up, buttercup. He's not saying that. No, he's showing his genuine care for her, and I believe he's hinting at what he's about to do. Jesus is hinting at what he's about to do. For he said to her, do not weep. The first thing that we see going on here is the full compassion of Jesus Christ on display. God's compassion is being highlighted. Secondly, I want us to notice Jesus not only is compassionate, but Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the giver of life. Verses 14 and 15, And he came up and touched the coffin, And the bearers came to a halt, and he said, 
Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Now this is this is rather rather shocking frankly because a Jew would never do this. A, a Jew would never touch something that was dead. For a Jew, touching the dead meant immediate defilement according to the law of Moses. You were immediately ceremonially unclean. Numbers 19, verses 11 and 16 says you, you, you cannot touch a dead body. You cannot touch anything that's out in the field that happens to die. You, you, you cannot do that. To do that is to defile yourself. But nothing, notice, nothing can defile him who purifies that which is unclean. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying to the people with an action, nothing makes me unclean because I'm the one who makes clean. In fact, Hosea 6.6 6 says that God requires mercy over sacrifice. It's more that you show mercy to someone than sacrifice. God wants you to show mercy because that's the heart of God. It's a merciful heart. And so here is Jesus showing mercy. Why? Because he's the change agent. He's the change agent. He comes up and touches the coffin and all immediately stop. Now, it's probably not a coffin in the sense that we have in our minds a coffin, a box, because typically the Jews didn't do that because burial happened very quickly. When someone died, it was usually within the first 24 hours that they would take them and put them in a tomb somewhere. And so they were carried out on what's called a briar. It was really just a, a bed, a, a kind of death couch, if you will. And so the body would have been wrapped and spices would have been put on it and everything else, but it would have been on there up on the top, an open body being carried out in the sense that it's open, not in a coffin. But it says coffin here because that's what we understand. It's this death procedure. It's what's going on. And he comes up and he touches it and it immediately it stops. You notice he hasn't spoken a word yet. He's just come upon the scene. He hasn't spoken a word his silent touch stops everything. Maybe they stop because they're now wondering, why would you do that? You're defiled now. Maybe it's just shocking them, but he stops everything. And here in this moment, life and death are staring at each other in its face. Jesus being life and death, the wages of sin happening, carrying itself out upon the world. Death, where is going to be your victory in this moment? Not here. Not here. Why? Because God came to town. God's come to town. One preacher put it this way, quote, the scene is almost parabolic of Jesus' mission to arrest death and swallow up death in victory. Unquote. I like that. It's almost parabolic of that. Here is, here is life itself. Jesus 
who is life coming and just saying, no, death, you are not winning this day. He's right. This is why Jesus came, is it not? Jesus came to give life to all who would believe. And so here is all these people, this multitude, this sizable crowd with the widow, the multitude of people who are accompanying Jesus. All of them are there. They're stunned and in silent shock that not only have they come upon this, but now here is this arresting of the crowd, stopping it in its tracks. And into that silence, into the hush, after all of the mourning is quieted, into all that hush are the words of Jesus. It's one simple command. Young man, I say to you, arise. I don't want us to miss the, the glorious word arise here. Don't miss it. Egyro, that's the original word. Egyro, it means to excite, to, to arouse, to awaken. Harkens us back all the way to Genesis, doesn't it? When God said, let there be light. And what happened? And there was. Let there be light. And there was the creative power of God on display to bring something from nothing. Theologians call that ex nihilo, out of nothing. God did that out of nothing. How can God do that? Well, there's only one way. He is the creator of all there is. God does not need material in order to produce material. God creates the material. This is exactly what Colossians 1 tells us concerning Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by who? By the firstborn one, by Him all things were created. What things? The things in the heaven, the things on the earth, the things visible, the things invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the Creator. Jesus Christ has created all things. The Son of God has created. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the life. Agairo, arise, he says. Clearly, profoundly, Jesus wants everyone to know that resurrection power, that life-giving power rests with Him and Him alone. Young man, I say to you, get up. By the way, do we understand that Jesus is talking to a lifeless, unanimated, dead body? A lifeless, unanimated corpse. Beloved, need I remind us in the human realm, dead bodies do not hear? Dead bodies do not hear? 
But this young man was dead in his body. But God had his spirit. All spirits stand before God. And so when this young man was made to hear the voice of Jesus, there was only one thing it could do. He obeyed. Verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's almost like nonchalant. It's almost like Luke writes, oh, hey, Theophilus, check this out. You know, one day we were in the city, this small little town called Nain. There was a funeral procession going by, and and we happened upon it. It was kind of an odd thing. And there I was, and Jesus touches this, this coffin, and he says to this woman, don't weep. And then he says, hey, hey, get up. And the guy gets up. And he starts to talk to his mom. Almost nonchalant. Hey, whatever. The coldness of death is in the hands of the life giver. He spoke and it was gone. The coldness of death left the man. The heat of life pulsates through the man's body and he begins to speak. The flushness of his faith is is gone. The claws are off of his faith. Luke doesn't tell us what he says. He doesn't tell us even how he says it, but whatever it was, it glorified God and it highlighted Jesus as God. You say, how do you know that? Because look at the response of the people. Jesus showed his compassion. Jesus commands this dead man to rise. And the response of the people is this, verses 16 and 17, and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. Fear gripped the people. Phobos, it's where we get our term phobia from. That's the original word in the language. That seems like an understatement, doesn't it? Fear gripped them. Everybody there was so frightened at what they just saw, they were trembling with fear. It just immediately overtook them. We can imagine that. Someone rises from being dead. That's pretty traumatizing. That's really what the word means. They were traumatized at the display of God's power, being in his presence. We go, man, that's that's really something. Seems rather strange almost from a distance because we've never seen that, have we? We've never seen the dead rise. Really shouldn't seem all strange to us, beloved. Why? Because this is the normal response when God is manifest. Fear gripping people. And so there is this crowd with the universal rush of adrenaline opening their mouths to praise God. 
And all of that is is so wonderful. All of it is so great. In fact, it's so amazing that the details of this event and all that took place and what had begun here spread like wildfire throughout the entire region. Judea and all the surrounding district. You can imagine the moment that happened, the guy sat up, man, somebody took off like a rocket to the next town, said, you got to see this. I mean, there was no Twitter. There was no social media. Man, I got my video out there so we can get the immediate video play of it. None of that. Word of mouth. You got to be kidding me. What I just saw is, will blow your mind. You say, oh, that's great, man. People were told about Jesus. Yes. But what were they being told? What were they being told? You see, the point of this event was one, to comfort this broken-hearted widow. And yet, within that comforting of this broken-hearted widow, more importantly was to show all who Jesus is. It wasn't to create publicity for Jesus. The real tragedy here is not that here was a dead man who, by way of the means of God's grace and compassion, was brought back to life. The real tragedy here is that they missed the point about Jesus. That's the real tragedy. They said, God has visited us. But they didn't say that because they believed that God was actually in their presence personally. They didn't say that because they were pointing to Jesus and going, Jesus, you're God. And and we know God's with us because Jesus, you're Him. No. They were saying God has visited His people as if it was just God working through another prophet. great prophet has arisen among us. There were many great prophets in the Old Testament days. None really more great than Elijah. It's interesting, the parallels with this passage. Over a hundred years earlier, the prophet Elijah had gone to a small town named Zarephath. And he also encountered a widow with an only son. And as Elijah was there, that only son became ill and eventually died. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 19 through 24. The adult Sunday school class studied that passage some weeks ago. But here's what it says. He said to her, that is Elijah, said to her, give me your son. This is after the son died. He took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living. He laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He said, and then it says, then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. 
Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and that it is true. Notice what took place? Pre-incarnate God, pre-incarnate prior to Jesus becoming man, pre-incarnate God by means of his power and providence sovereignly does what he accomplished through Elijah. Elijah didn't accomplish that. God, through Elijah, accomplishment. In other words, the results are similar. A, a young boy who dies, a young boy of a widow dies, and, and they are brought back to life, and yet the production of it isn't the same. It didn't happen the same way. What happened is vastly different. Why? Because Jesus is greater than any prophet. Elijah couldn't do anything he did unless God did it through him. Jesus simply did it. Why? Because Jesus is God. Elijah could pray. Elijah was a man of God. What he said was true. He could go to God. He could plead with God on behalf of others. And in the case of the woman from Zarephath, God answered his prayer. And he was able to deliver the boy back to the mother. But Jesus is God. Jesus simply spoke the word. A guy rose. And he arose. Jesus did it by his own power. The people missed the point. The people had missed it once again. God had come to town and the people missed it. Even though someone rose from the dead. Does God come to town today? Does God visit us today? Well, we may not see him as they did that day. But we know when he has been here. You say, how? How, how do we know that? Because God raises the dead. God raises the dead. Each and every time a dead soul comes to life through faith in Jesus Christ, God has visited us. The only difference is that we don't tremble in fear. Maybe we should. The one who gives life, the very one who sustains life, the one in whom all will face one day Without being in Jesus Christ, there is no hope. 
Remember what Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says. Martha, do, do you believe that? It's the same question for all of us. Do we believe who Jesus is? That's, that's the reality here today. Do we believe who Jesus is? Martha answer. She answered Jesus in a very profound way. She said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. I believe that. I know that. Even though you're standing right here in front of me in this physical place. That's the right view of Jesus. She said, you are God. I believe it. He is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to earth to give life a ransom for many. The Bible tells us there is no salvation in anyone else. There is no salvation in anything else. And so here is Luke writing down for us being a faithful steward of his historical work, giving us just exactly what we need to hear. What compassion. What power. I pray that our response is unlike the many of that day. I pray that our response is to realize that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The man, Christ Jesus. Arise, Jesus says. Arise. A word is enough. A word is enough. It's not how we say it. It's not how many times we say it. It's not the church, the building, the people. It's none of us that caused someone to raise from the dead. It's surely and only Jesus Christ. The word is enough. And God comes to town. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us your power, who you are. So many deny you today. So many turn their backs on you. So many don't think that in you is life. It's clear. Even if you never told us, even if you never showed us incidents and moments like this in the history, it would still be true of you. You are life. And all who believe upon you have life. And we're grateful that you are compassionate, caring, loving, 
out of the very depths of who you are, you care for us in ways that we could never imagine. The Lord, as we contemplate the truth of this text, and the reality of who you are, may it be impactful upon our hearts so that we live differently. We don't live like the world lives. We know we are intimately and eternally linked with the Creator who is life. All to your glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.